Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Politics without the soap opera. With unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen yearning to live freely again to the one and only CR podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house today, Tuesday, August 24th. And I every once in a while I have to pinch myself to wonder, is this all a nightmare? This can't be true. It, we, we can't be living in a time... We're the very people who likely funded and probably created the worst virus we've ever seen, made it worse through mass vaccination, mandating stuff on our bodies that don't even work, then get it approved, and then systematically block everything that does work. You know, you, you, you take that summation together, and it's very hard to even focus on other issues. There's a lot of other issues I'd love to talk about. You know, what they do with our health and survival, they do on our economy, other things as well. We have crime, we have legal migration, we have foreign policy. And they all follow the same model, really. Everything that we should be doing, we don't do. And everything that is antithetical to a proper policy, they pursue because they're a bunch of genocidal whores. But this, we can't move on from. You literally can't live a functional life. Before the COVID fascism, I was thinking of moving on to a different field. I was so frustrated with the two phony movements we have, which is really one, two phony parties, which is really one. What am I going to do already? But then I realized we can't move on. So I know a lot of you count on this show for vital life-saving information we have from our doctors on the show for how to properly treat it, what we're doing wrong. We're going to have Dr. Robert Malone on again today to discuss what the FDA did and didn't do with their quasi-approval yesterday, what it means, where we are epidemiologically with this kind of viral immune escape, and the need for early treatment as always. And hopefully we can get to a couple of other things. I'm very excited, by the way, today to announce a new sponsor. And speaking of kind of what they do with healthcare, there's a similar thing with agriculture and food. Why do you think just four companies control 80% of the U.S. meat industry? Because big food crushes the little guy. All their food is dipped in junk. The more I get into this kick with a lot of these doctors on natural foods and supplements and vitamins, it really opens up a whole new world I never understood before. How the system is literally killing us. But Moink, as in Oink, it's an American company out in Missouri, mom and pop shop. They make the most delicious steak, bacon, salmon you can imagine. All of their uh, meat and chicken, they're from animals raised outdoor, grass-fed, grass-finished. The fish swim wild in the ocean. When you see the sizzling steak out of your box, your moink box, M-O-I-N-K, you will want to order it immediately. Um, This is a way to support 
a mom-and-pop American company. If you sign up at moinkbox.com slash conservative, you can get a year of bacon for free and then pick up what meats you want delivered with your first box. Um, you could change what you get each month. They have offer all different varieties. Um, again, it was uh, founded by an eighth-generation farmer. Uh, it truly, truly, truly what healthcare. Everything we talk about what healthcare should look like, this is what agriculture should and would look like if the government wouldn't get involved. Um, if you join the Mo- Moink movement today, which you should, go to moinkbox.com slash conservative. That's M-O-I-N-K box.com slash conservative. Again, the first year of your best bacon you'll ever taste um, is, is free by signing up. My wife lo- loves salmon. This is the best salmon we've ever had. We've uh, we've shared some of the meat with. Uh, we we actually have a conservative mail carrier. Um, she is terrific. We got into speaking one, and I was like, "You gotta, you gotta check this out." It's our new sponsor, and she's obsessed with it now. So again, it's the tastiest, healthiest meat you've ever gotten. Moinkbox.com/slash/conservative. So, I want to start off today by playing a clip that some of you sent to me. Um, one listener in New Hampshire, um, uh, thanks so much for sending this to me, but a couple others did as well. This is Fauci from March 26, warning about you know why it takes a while to develop a vaccine. Take a listen. Now, the issue of safety, something that I wanna make sure the American public understand. It's not only safety when you inject somebody and they get maybe an idiosyncratic reaction, they get a little allergic reaction, they get pain. There's safety associated. Does the vaccine make you worse? And there are diseases in which you vaccinate someone, they get infected with what you're trying to protect them with, and you actually enhance the infection. You can get a good feel for that in animal models. So that's gonna be interspersed at the same time that we're testing, we're gonna try and make sure we don't have enhancement. So the worst possible thing you could do is vaccinate somebody to prevent infection and actually make them worse. Doesn't that sound an awful lot like antibody-dependent disease enhancement, ADE? It's funny how before COVID was weaponized, It's interesting when you go back to Fauci's statements, he followed the science. And he said, this is something that needs to be studied. It could actually make someone sicker. Not just, he made clear, not just the side effects, the allergic reactions, but to the actual, you run the risk of giving them the actual disease. Isn't that interesting? And again, the FDA warned about it and they said it's a concern if the vaccine wanes. And now they openly tell us the vaccine is waning. And yet somehow we're supposed to ignore that. You know that SAGE, there's a group called SAGE, S-A-G-E, that advises the British government on scientific issues. In, on July 7, 20, 20, 2021, they put out their latest report and they said the combination of high prevalence and high levels of vaccination creates the conditions in which an immune escape variant is most likely to emerge. Japan, Japanese researchers, it's not the government, but Japanese researchers just came out with a paper, a preprint, 
The SARS-CoV-2 Delta variant is poised to acquire complete resistance to wild-type spike vaccines. So again, they're voiding out their thing right away. Whatever efficacy that it had at a very painful cost is sunk. Okay, it's in the past. To go, even if you're a pro-vaccine in the past, to push it, knowing the micro side effects and then the macro side effects of creating worse viral mean escape, and then there's almost no efficacy anymore, what exactly are you accomplishing? That's genocide. It makes no sense. All it accomplishes is, of course, boxing out other treatments, which is truly disgusting. And by the way, I heard of another person that had to take their mother to uh, a hospital. She was recovering nicely from COVID, but got bacterial pneumonia. And I was like, the doctor didn't prescribe doxycycline to an elderly person? You know, this was one of the first things that we saw, or Brian Tyson, who treated 6,200 patients, never lost a single patient that came to him before day seven, he said the first thing he did was look at the Spanish flu. And one of the things they found was that a good number of people died from bacterial pneumonia. So you don't just say, oh, it's a virus. You don't use antibiotics, but it spawns super infections. So you want to head that off. Yet to this day, it is not a standard of care. Standard of care is remdesivir and only in the hospital, which by the way, I want to get into this at some point, but increasingly, there is data that it's causing kidney problems. So in addition to not working, in other words, everything they accuse ivermectin and hydroxy and you know, all the you know, early treatments that work of, of you know, having these problems, guess what? It applies to their own garbage. So there's that. Very important point I wanted to get out to you guys today. Now, I also have a column out today on Uttar Pradesh, as promised. This is the area that used ivermectin with success. They literally have no COVID. It, it, it's, I've said this before, but there's something greater than even studies. Okay? There's something greater than studies, and that is reality. You don't need to study reality. Okay, you could study masks, but and then the only randomized controlled trial showed it didn't work. But and by the way, it turns out CDC was sitting on a study of children showing that none of the interventions in the schools worked, including masks. No evidence it worked. But you don't need a study. You see it. Ivermectin is in reverse. So many people who use it, it turns them around. And again, the only cases that it fails are likely because the dose is not high enough. Way lowballing it. But Uttar Pradesh is the home. It might sound like that's an obscure place, right? What if I told you Uttar Pradesh is the most populated state in the most populated country? In India, 240 million people. So this one state of India has 73% of the United States population. Okay? Do you know that the last number of months, they've been averaging a seven-day average of 24 cases per day and anywhere from zero to two deaths per day? 
73% of the United States' entire population. If you look at cases per capita in India, they ranked dead last. Number 36 out of 36 in cases. In other words, every case when they kind of, you know, you have the curve, it goes up, it goes down, but then it kind of reaches a floor, and it doesn't go below that. We've noticed that. Some of that is the way we count cases, but here it's literally nothing. It eradicated it. Now, yes, it's true that by now, in general, in most places in India, it's very, very low because most people got it, and they have pretty close to herd immunity because they already got the Delta spread. But if you look at, I have a whole analysis on all the states that used ivermectin versus the ones that didn't, and it's unmistakable. But Uttar Pradesh did it the most, did it the earliest, was the most systematic about it, and they're doing the best. So I have amazing, amazing stories on that. Uttar Pradesh has one, trying to get this straight, what the numbers are. Um, Where are we? It, 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 their their death rate is like nothing, nothing. But it's it's one like I'm trying to think. One one hundredth, no no one twentieth the death rate of the U.S. in Uttar Pradesh, but it's one third the death rate of India as a whole. Epidemiologically, when have you ever seen the most populous part of a given country? having one-third the deaths per capita of the aggregate of the entire country. And again, even the deaths they had was for a short period of time. It's a whole story. They have migrant workers, not from internationally, but the people who live in the villages, they go to Mumbai and a couple other big cities half the year. They're seasonal workers, and they go back home to their villages. When COVID came to Mumbai, they all fled and brought it into Uttar Pradesh. And obviously, they didn't. Ha- Uttar Pradesh was giving out ivermectin. These guys were in Mumbai. They weren't in Uttar Pradesh then. They lived there, but they were working in Uttar Pradesh, so they didn't have access to it. They brought it in, and they had a spread among the people that weren't taking ivermectin. But they clamped down on that, and boom, they got rid of it quicker, swifter, and now it's dead. So for those who think that the miracle of river blindness is limited to parasitic infections, Uttar Pradesh demonstrates it could have been done everywhere. That is science. And folks, speaking of science, our other sponsor today, Gainful. I always knew every day I know I got to work out. But in the morning, I'm too tired. And then when I'm done with work, I'm too tired. I don't have the energy. My, my head hurts from all the screen time I have, just the emotional draining nature of the work that I do. Gainful gives you peace of mind that your protein, hydration, pre, pre-workout supplements contain the finest ingredients. The thing about them more than anything, they have a lot of these products on their market, but they're they're specialized to you. So you go online, you take their five-minute quiz, your just your your body weight, your you know what type of workout you do. Is it is it cardio? Is it weightlifting? Um, a couple other questions. It's very quick, and then they'll mail you a, a formula just for yourself. No shipping charge, and boom, I'm like, you know, you feel the energy levels going up, and I actually look forward to working out for once. That That's always the biggest problem when you don't want to get into it. Once you get into it, it's a lot easier. That's what their formulas are for. They also, by the way, have an on-staff registered dietitian um, that you could call upon anytime, one-on-one access if you have questions 
Um, so again, I mean, if you've noticed, I've gotten a lot more into this natural, zero artificial flavors, colors or sweeteners. It tastes good. It's great, but it doesn't have the garbage in it. The worst thing you want to do is when you want to boost your your system and put garbage in it. Uh, again, this is where the science is and has always been for anyone who wants to open their eyes. So to get $20 off your personalized supplements, go to Gainful, that's G-A-I-N-F-U-L. Um, for those of you who don't know how to spell, it's one L. Gainful.com slash conservative. That's Gainful.com slash conservative, 20 bucks off. Gainful, make it your only personalized nutrition made just for your tastes. Now, as I noted at the top of the hour here, I wanted to get back to our special guest, Dr. Robert Malone, inventor of mRNA vaccines. He's also, by the way, very, very well studied and written on pharmacology as well. So if we have time, we could talk about early treatments. But I did want to talk about the epidemiological situation, what we're seeing in general going on now. We talked about India, how in especially in the places they used ivermectin, boom, went down, done, finished. And then we go elsewhere in the world, including our own country, and we're having major problems, much worse than we did before anyone was vaccinated, when we had even less built-up immunity. So what is going on there? Dr. Malone, thanks so much for really taking out some time from your busy schedule. Glad to be here again and, and to help all of us. I mean, uh, my Twitter followers and your audience and everybody else helps me to clarify things in my own mind often. So uh, I'm really glad to have a chance to interact. And this is really the beauty. Iron sharpens iron. Um, and it's funny, so many of us are, we've made these groups and chat lists, and we've all learned so much. It's really been one of the few beautiful things to emerge from this debacle and this tyranny and just anti-science uh, agenda where we all kind of come with an open mind. Hey, this is different from what we thought, you know. So let, let me start there. I, if you would have talked to someone like me, um, a non-scientist, but someone who really has followed this like a hawk and has written about it extensively for 18 months, I would have said a couple months ago, you know, early spring, I would have said, look, you know, I'm concerned about some of the side effects of the vaccine, but likely it definitely has to have a good degree of efficacy between the built-up immunity already and plus the vaccine. Yeah, it might percolate a little bit here and there, but we're certainly not going to have a run on hospitals again like we saw in the in the winter or last year, and that's it. Then comes the last two months. We have the Delta variant in India, which is percolating in, in the spring. It looked pretty virulent, spreading a lot, but, you know, it went away very quickly. Then it went to England, and early on, there were significant stories about, not just in the media, but on their tracing app, that this was more like a cold than even the flu. It wasn't much of a problem. There were a lot of cases very quickly, but didn't really seem to be that serious. And the data seemed to reflect that, a decoupling of the deaths from the cases. But then you started getting Israel and then the United States. And this thing looks to be both more virulent, but also, uh, I mean, more transmissible, but also somewhat more virulent. I mean, we're seeing more younger people get roped in. We're seeing the southern states surpass hospitalizations from last year. We're seeing the northern states already getting more cases than they had this time last year, sometimes tenfold in Oregon and Washington. Um, generally, most of the hospitalizations, although it's unclear, 
um, are from unvaccinated, although that number keeps changing in America. But in Israel, it's the majority are vaccinated. How could we square this enigma? Take as much time as you need. (laughs) So I think we got to be a little humble here. We always have a tendency to think that our interventions are making a huge difference. And sometimes it's other environmental factors that we're not really aware of that are playing a key role here. So you did a nice uh, summary of the kind of the sweep of the virus and uh, highlighted issues that may point to there being a seasonal component here. Uh, we, we like to think that it's all about how, how our interventions and how densely we vaccinate and all that. But a case can be made that some of these north-south differences that we're, we're so eager right now to attribute to southern state deplorable noncompliance uh, with vaccine uptake um, may have a big component of seasonality in the viral behavior. And uh, that, that is a, a variable that's never discussed. But uh, I, I, many of us are starting to speculate that that, that is an uncontrolled variable that we haven't really been accounting for. What, what we are clearly seeing is, is a version of what Gert von den Bosch has warned us about now for over a year, and I've been talking about uh, following his lead, me and many others, that uh, we are likely to generate escape mutants. Now, there are those that say that, well, these mutants like Delta arose before in Lambda, before there was vaccine widely deployed. Well, that's true. But geographically, they emerged in regions in which there was an ongoing vaccine campaign at the time that they emerged. So the, mm. the thesis that the vaccines aren't driving the escape mutants, number one, it just doesn't fit with known uh, viral evolution. Um, and there's two super papers out that I've linked on my Twitter page uh, in Cell Press, very high profile, solid uh, viral geneticists and immunologists, uh, one, inclu- one being Michael Diamond uh, at, at WashU in St. Louis. And that's actually in, in a cell uh, labeled publication. So uh, in which, which he's making the case that uh, the virus may that the virus is able to elicit um, antibody responses that are very similar across multiple people uh, to, in order to uh, I'm sorry the vaccine is in order to elicit a protective effect and that means that we are at at real risk for exactly the thing that Peter Navarro and I have been warning about which is tuning the whole population to respond to a single antigen in a similar way. And once the virus is able to evolve to escape that, it will no longer have any barriers to spread and cause disease, which means that our last line of defense for the elderly and the high-risk individuals will fall. So what we've got here broadly is uh, totally uh, consistent with known viral evolution with the known consequences of vaccinating into a widespread pandemic, as illustrated by Merrick's disease, that the you point out that the variable of whether Delta is more or less pathogenic than Alpha or Beta is unresolved. But the Israeli data and the UK data both strongly suggest, and, and the case fatality rate in the United States, that the 
kind of scaremongering of the media that Delta is going to be so much more severe in terms of the pathology, that doesn't seem to be playing out. Now, the shift towards the young is a suggestion consistent with the fact that we have vaccinated the elderly high-risk populations much more densely. So they're all typically at 70 plus, 80 plus uh, percent uptake of vaccine. And so no surprise that the young in some of these areas who are less heavily vaccinated may be populating the ERs and, and the ICUs. But the, again, the Israeli data in particular um, show that we really shouldn't be so smug as to infer that this is a pandemic in the unvaccinated. That is not what the data show us. What we have is leaky vaccines that uh, are only, you know, it's been measured at less than 40% effective in protecting infection. And once you are infected, whether you've been previously vaccinated or not, you replicate at something like 200 times the level that you would have seen virus titers replication occurring in the case of alpha or beta. Now, what does that mean? There's a whole bunch of implications. You're, you're, if you're vaccinated, you're still able to be infected. You're maybe 40% protected against infection. So four out of 10 people that are exposed to an infectious virus dose would not become infected. The other six would. Those that are less protected are the ones that have lower titers. That's been demonstrated in another paper. Um, and, uh, um, we know that the uh, durability, that's the word that we use for how long does the, vi the vaccine protect you, how long do you maintain antibody titers, for example, is six months or less in the case of the Pfizer vaccine. So uh, we have waning titers, dropping titers uh, in the previously vaccinated. They are susceptible to reinfection in a, to a considerable degree. Once infected, the virus replicates to a, a much, much higher titer. That suggests that you will be, for instance, in your mask behavior, there's a lot more virus that's going to be coming out of your nose and mouth. And so the prior measures of how effective masks are are probably not going to be predictive for Delta infection. Um, furthermore, it does show the data do suggest that the prior vaccination is protecting you against hospitalization and death. Um, the death has some interesting nuances in it, but let's just give that broad statement. That suggests that the people that are vaccinated are less likely to show symptoms, and yet they're still going to be replicating and shedding at high level. That kind of sounds like super spreaders, if you, if you unpack what those words mean. So the, the thesis that the dangerous parties are the unvaccinated that are getting infected, mm, the case can be made that the unvaccinated are more likely to end up in bed or sick, um, and the vaccinated are more likely to pr be protected walking around infected at high levels shedding virus. So, uh, um, you know, are, are this, this whole, you know, logic of vaccine cards and and if you're previously vaccinated, you're protected, that all falls apart. It's, it's just not consistent with the data. So what does this mean epidemiologically going forward? Uh, we're highly likely to have additional waves. Now, Dr. Fauci last night, as part of this campaign with the licensure, quote unquote, of, 
that have just occurred, um, made statements. First, he said, well, we're likely to have this reasonably under control. Now he's moved the goalpost. He says 90% vaccine uptake, which means, in his opinion, we got to vaccinate all the kiddos. And remember, that means that everybody's going to have to get rebooted at six to eight months. Uh, re, they're going to have to get another jab. And I guess every six to eight months, that data isn't in yet to show that's really going to be effective. But he's saying that we're going to be, now he's saying we're going to be back to normal, something like, first he said fall of, uh, of next year. And now he's saying spring of next year. But again, that's just the same kind of speculation that we heard that was the basis for your uh, false sense of security that you rolled out with your question. Over. So that's, see, what, what bothers me about this entire thing that we're going forward with, it sounds to me like we're chasing our tail in a vicious cycle because if Van den Bosch is correct, and you know, so you you notice, and and I think it is true that they are getting a degree of protection for themselves, but they're still clearly spreading it. Um, but you know, you are increasingly seeing people getting clinically ill from it who are vaccinated. You got Jesse Jackson and his wife um, in the hospital. Um, more and more, I'm hearing from ICU doctors that they're seeing Israel's experience in the sense that among those who are vaccinated in the hospital, they got vaccinated early, like in January. Um, Israel certainly we're seeing, heck, we're already seeing people with the third booster that are in the hospital in Israel. And I, I think there's a Spanish study, might have a couple of European scientists on it that recently came out and shows that even the initial antibody spike is less than it was before. So you can't assume you're going to have six to eight months on the clock like you did with the first one. But what you can assume is that you're going to have additive toxicity risk. So could you, could you explain that more? So every time you get it, it's already known that the adverse events, uh, both their severity and frequency and distribution are higher with dose two than dose one. Um, just because you've uh, won the lottery and not ended up sick from vaccine with dose one and dose two doesn't mean you're going to uh, dodge the bullet with dose three. There, it, you, know, you, you have certain biologic risk factors, but, but every time you take a shot of this, you're re-exposing yourself to those risks mm. of adverse events, right? Are, are you saying it's kind of similar to what studies have found that people who had the spike from prior infection are more prone to get adverse uh, reactions to the vaccine I'm not, I'm not than those that, that I'm not I don't know the data okay. aren't let's stay with the data but what okay. we can reasonably infer <clears throat> is that every time you accept another dose of vaccine you accept the associated risks and that that event is somewhat independent it's also a function of underlying undetermined risk factors that you may carry but you're you're kind of rolling the dice each time you take another jab. That's the honest truth. I don't see how anyone could dispute that. But we don't have the data, again, to assess how serious that, serious that risk is. And by the way, when we get into the nuances of uh, these FDA authorization actions yesterday, um, there's a great big bombshell in there in which the FDA explicitly acknowledges that their safety tracking system is inadequate.
So I want to get to that in a moment. And and again, folks, a lot of what Dr. Malone is citing, you could find on his Twitter page before he gets zapped from there, RW Malone MD. Make sure you follow him. And just want to say today's interview is sponsored again by iTarget. Uh, don't be like the government and misfire. Make sure if you own a gun, you know how to use it. You know how to properly draw. Um, with ammo so expensive today, iTarget is really the way to go. It's a laser uh, dummy bullet you put in your gun. They come in two, two, three for rifle rounds, but certainly all the handgun rounds. You set up a target. You have your phone um, right on it, and you download their app. You could literally time your shots and it tracks it, it renders the shots on the screen. It really is accurate. My time is exactly the way it is on the range. You save time and money, um, and you really keep up that muscle memory. You get everything except for the recoil. But the stance, the grip, um, the the five-point draw, very important there. Uh, you get 10% off if, and plus free shipping if you use offer code CR. So again, iTargetPro, iTargetPro.com. Offer code CR. Okay, so Dr. Malone, what I wa- before you get to the FDA, that's the next thing I want to touch on. I want to just close the loop on the epidemiology of what's going on. I myself am still very confused about what's Delta in terms of variants that might have come anyway. What's the general viral immune escape of Vanden Bosch's, you know, um, premonition? And what is officially ADE, antibody-dependent disease enhancement? Because my what people are asking me is, hey, Daniel, if you're having ADE, wouldn't you see not just the macro situation get worse and not just breakthrough with the vaccine, but the people who were vaccinated to get a worse infection than those unvaccinated, which it might be on par in Israel, but we don't really see it worse. And certainly in the United States, yet it's not worse. So what exactly, when you say Vanden Bosch's, you know, fears are coming true, in in what way? And is that is that the same thing or not as ADE? Okay, let's take up the ADE topic first. Um, uh, when I've talked about ADE in the past in, in podcasts and in on the websites and LinkedIn, etc., Antibody-dependent enhancement is one particular pathway that is, uh, it's one particular example of vaccine-enhanced disease, but it's not the only one. It's the easiest one to explain the mechanism of. Um, mm. it, it relies, and it's the one that FDA explicitly said, by the way, they say nothing about the ADE follow-up in their letters right now. Whereas in their emergency use authorization, they specifically highlighted the risk. Um, uh, So ADE is something that was in the literature from prior coronavirus vaccines and uh, which myself and the FDA both highlighted as a potential risk. The data now have matured to the point where it looks like ADE is a relatively unlikely mechanism of Uh, vaccine-enhanced disease. That doesn't mean that vaccine-enhanced disease is not happening. Um, The reason is because ADE technically involves macrophage uh, and monocytes being infected that otherwise don't get infected. And all of the current data, including the pathology, 
suggest that these cells are not being infected, even in the presence of suboptimal antibodies. Other cells are. So the, class, the, the pushback in terms of using the terminology ADE right now is that from the fact checkers and, well, the, it's really from more sophisticated virologists and immunologists, is the data don't support macrophage replication happening with this particular SARS-CoV-2. The mechanism that is the leading um, hypothesis for vaccine-enhanced disease seems to be the formation of immune complexes. So these are aggregates of virus and antibody that's suboptimal uh, in terms of the ability of the, the antibody to block infectivity or biologic activity of the virus. And it seems that at, at some uh, levels and some types of activities of antibodies in general in aggregate, you get these large aggregates forming that can lodge into uh, pulmonary vasculature in particular, so in the lung, and trigger hyperinflammatory responses. So there is a kind of a new emerging thinking here that what we may be having is not technically antibody-dependent enhancement as it occurs in uh, um, dengue virus, for example, but rather a different type of vaccine-enhanced disease. And uh, is it happening so then to your question about the Israeli data and what we're observing, uh, what, we, what we do see is for some reason with Delta, we're seeing much higher levels of virus replication in the body once one is infected, whether or not one has been previously vaccinated. Is it that those, and, and we have a statement by the FDA, I'm sorry, by the CDC uh, director that uh, we're seeing um, uh, very uh, severe disease, I think is the term she used, in the previously vaccinated. Is it that that disease is more severe than in the unvaccinated? Or I, I can't, dis her, her words are ambiguous that she's used. And I Meaning it could just mean it's a dud for them. It's just that it didn't protect them. So they got the same severe disease that anyone else would have been slated to get. Correct. That is that is one interpretation of her her words. They're they're not clear. So we got to be, you know, to be on the right side of of the data here. We need to acknowledge that ambiguity, in my opinion. Um, are what we are seeing are these increased titers. And the question is, are the titers higher of virus replication is the amount of virus being produced higher in the previously vaccinated that are in the waning phase of the immune response versus those that have been unvaccinated or those who are vaccinated and still at the peak of immune response. If so, that would suggest something like antibody-dependent enhancement, but not necessarily the classic enhancement of infection of macrophage. It could be enhancing infection of other cell types. And there are other mechanisms by which it could be doing so by the antibodies basically functioning as alternative uh, uh, receptor binding proteins to facilitate infection of other cell types. That part is still an open box, and we don't know what the answer is on that. So there's ways that we can poke at those Israeli data and try to pull that out by looking at what is the titers as well as the disease severity in those that have been vaccinated 
uh, less than six months ago versus greater than six months ago since we know that the titers drop about four to six months. So there's that part of this kind of complex landscape that we're dealing with right now. In terms of the disease, there's this odd thing that was observed in the Israeli data. I mean, I'm sorry, in the UK data. And then when I went back and nitpicked uh, two days ago, I think it's Sunday, I spent a long time looking at the leaked CDC slide deck and writing it up for trial site news for a little article that basically helps walk people through the data so they can understand each slide. Um, what I noticed was the slope of the line um, in vaccinated breakthrough infections for death versus the slope of the line for disease was very different. This is similar to these uh, data from the UK and the slope of the line for death increase in mortality and the numbers of people dying that were previously vaccinated is much steeper than the slope of the line for hospitalization ergo severe disease. So there, there's ghosts in the data suggesting that, yes, it's protecting against disease ergo hospitalization, but paradoxically less protective against death. And that's totally unaddressed in any of the CDC dialogue or, or uh, peer-reviewed literature or anything. It's, yet it's persistent. But the numbers are but, still But what low. could account for that? I don't know what the answer is. It would suggest because don't you have to get severely ill that, before you die? Yeah, it, it would suggest that for some reason, and it, it could be totally an artifact of the people that are ending up in the hospital. Could be that there are people who are have severe uh, comorbidities. Um, so it could be that what we're seeing is that um, those that are ending up in the hospital with Delta are people that have very significant pre-existing morbidity, and it's, it's those other factors that are driving them to death uh, rather than the virus mm. per se. So this is one of the problems with looking at these data, especially these small data sets. I've talked about this before. It's confounding and masking. And what we know is even in the elderly, where we talk about this huge risk of death, you know, 20, 30, 40%, in the very old, if you get COVID, all of those people have, virtually all of them have major comorbidities. And so how much of that death is um, really a consequence of COVID versus their comorbidities? And COVID is just kind of an additional insult that's pushing them over the edge. And they were already right teeter-tottering on death because of their other problems, cardiac disease, obesity, Etc. So I think, you know, case there are those who make the case and there's merit to this, by the way, um, that that like influenza in, you know, influenza and pneumococcal disease are, are you know, sometimes called uh, pneumonia in general. It's called uh, the old person's friend. Uh, if, if you're if you're on your way out anyhow and you've got a lot of other coexisting disease. Sometimes these infectious disease are just enough to put you over the edge and uh, and you end up in a spiral that's a consequence of all your other comorbidities. That is kind of looking like what's happening with uh, SARS-CoV-2 in these very elderly. It's an interesting fact that we lose more kids annually 
historically from flu by far than we lose from SARS-CoV-2. And Um, young kids, I would add, like uh, toddlers and infants from RSV, we certainly lose a lot more. Well put. So so there's a kind of an emerging profile here that we may have uh, overinterpreted this intrinsic severity of this virus and overlooked the fact that it's um, that the people that are dying are people that already have some very serious disease uh, risk factors that put them at risk for death. And um, that we may have overinterpreted uh, the uh, contribution of SARS-CoV-2 infection to overall morbidity and mortality uh, in that it's like other respiratory viruses, it's picking off the people. I, I don't know how else to say this without, this just doesn't sound very nice. Um, to be blunt, uh, the folks that are dying are the ones that are already at death's door anyhow for other reasons. Although, although I would say, I mean, again, I, I, I think we, this is very murky and the United States' data is horrible, um, but we are, my concern is just the latest iteration does seem to be roping in younger people. I'm not saying it's a, a, it's a ton of people as a, you know, relative to the denominator, but I'm hearing more younger people, very young people on ventilators than I've ever heard, um, yeah, which that, again, is so, just kind of So thank you for saying that. What I'm seeing is a concerted push in the press to push out those stories. And they're sure. all anecdotal. They, they are repeated endlessly, particularly as part of the justification for a while we have to mass vaccinate our kids. And yet, I don't see the data. I don't see the data. And we are doing daily dives into the data. And it's right not in now. the UK. We're, the UK has much better data, and it's not, and we, we don't see it in their data. And we're not seeing it in any data here. And so, how much of this is basically propaganda? Um, you know, we're, we're criticized. You just did a session on ivermectin. We're criticized for not having large, double blind, randomized controlled trials with ivermectin. We have a lot of small trials, and those are discounted as being anecdotal, yet, in aggregate, they show significant benefit. And uh, in terms of disclaimers, I should say that I've been taking ivermectin for my long COVID, and near as I can tell, it's sure helping me. Um, and a lot of other people seem to say the same thing. But then, then the media has no criticism and, and is avidly pushing what really amounts to propaganda to support a, a, a storyline that appears to be that we need to mass vaccinate the children when in fact there are no data supporting mass vaccination of children, that the mortality and morbidity is not there. The data are quite clear on that. And at least all data that I can find, and I've looked hard. Um, and what, what is known is that these kids have a non-trivial risk for cardiotoxicity, perhaps other types of toxicity, and in these authorization letters, the FDA flat out acknowledges that. And then just a few days ago, we had the CDC saying that the risk of the cardiac events in the children may be two and a half times or more 
greater than what they had previously disclosed when they so, took the black box warning on the on the vaccine. So that's what I wanted to get to in our final segment here to transpose to, to what what you want to talk about here with the FDA approval. Um, you, you do this so the so people like us don't have to sit and read through these documents. So they came out with the approval documents yesterday, and the summation of what you're telling me today is that we have more questions now. Than when we started out, you know, just for example, the seniors, you know, is the people with the comorbidities that needed the vaccine the most. Yet from the UK and Israel, it seems like and, and, and Walensky and Fauci have all said this as well in America, that those are the people that it's either wearing off the quickest. It's not working the most that that are getting sick and hospitalized even after being double vaccinated. And they need to be the first to get triple vaccinated. And so we have more questions than ever about the efficacy, the possibility of some sort of viral enhancement in the macro, making things worse epidemiologically, and then the individual side effects, the myocarditis. And, and yet and everyone and heard yesterday. And they're yeah. still just like before, just like what we've seen for a year and a half now, they're doubling down on speculation and they're making statements as if they are truths that are not yeah. grounded so, in science. So in other words, we have more questions ahead of full authorization than we even did for the lower threshold of EUA. So if you could kind of give a summation in five, ten minutes or so of what you've gleaned from, first of all, what the FDA did and did not do, and then some other significant nuggets from the document that people need to know about. Okay, so at the high level, um, what the FDA did was they actually issued two letters. And none of the press have picked up on this, okay? And the press is, is in Bill de Blasio and, you know, the mainstream news outlets are misrepresenting what's happened here. The Pfizer vaccine has not been licensed. Hear me? Pfizer vaccine, not licensed. It's had an extension of its emergency use authorization, which means that if it's the Pfizer-branded product, that product still has the liability waiver associated with it, which is what Pfizer has insisted on for anything that they sell to any government anywhere in the world. Okay. So um, there is a second letter that is the license. It is the um, marketing authorization and it's issued to BioNTech for the product called Comirnaty. Okay. Comirnaty is basically the Pfizer vaccine. But remember, Pfizer didn't develop it. They've just been manufacturing and distributing it and selling it to governments. But it was actually designed by the German uh, government-funded firm BioNTech. So the license letter actually went to BioNTech, not to Pfizer. Pfizer is not licensed. So the next question one might ask, uh, thank you for asking, is, well, can I go buy the licensed product right now or get a jab? Can I go to Walmart and get Comirnaty injected into my shoulder? And by the way, the licensed product will be susceptible to liability claims. Okay. So if I'm a person who hasn't been vaxxed yet and you've been holding off because you didn't like the idea that Pfizer had complete immunity, so they had no incentives to make a safe yeah. product. Um, and hey, you want to you know, hedge your bets and take the one that actually is licensed, which is community. Can I go to Walmart and get it? The answer is no. 
There's no community currently available. They have to manufacture and label it. Okay. Uh, so, so could you when you say when you say it's not available, are you saying there's two vaccines or it's the same thing um, technically in terms of its um, its qualities? It's just that legally, a Pfizer vaccine that has the license being dispensed doesn't exist. The Pfizer vaccine is not licensed for marketing. Um, it is under emergency use authorization. It is legally distinct from the BioNTech product. They're otherwise identical, but um, at least substantially identical. The FDA hedges its bets a little bit on that. But uh, the BioNTech So you're saying BioNTech made it in a lab, but it's not been commercially distributed? It is. In order for it to be marketed... It has to be properly packaged and labeled and vialed and put in the little box with the uh, um, package insert that talks about all the risks, et cetera. And the mm -hmm. FDA has just approved that, that uh, labeling. So it doesn't exist it. yet. It hasn't been, those haven't been filled and finished and they're not available for distribution. So all of this talk that Pfizer is now wow. licensed is untrue. Pfizer. So so let, let me let me bring this down just to the most basic level for our listeners, because a lot of people are getting this. Their employer says, all right, buddy, here's the end of the line now. You can't tell me it's experimental. We just got the news that this is fully approved. So I want you to take it. So you're saying that is a lie. The, the Pfizer vaccine that people will get at their local pharmacy or wherever the, the state government has set up distribution sites that thing going into their shoulder is still under EUA. Correct. Okay, that's one wow. point, point number one that the press has uh, somehow overlooked. Now, you were talking a moment ago um, about uh, the process and review and all this kind of stuff. Okay, another key point for your listeners to know is that the FDA has bypassed or disregarded the normal process of convening an advisory committee and allowing public comment. I've never heard of this being done in the past. They always have, because you have internal FDA reviewers, and then you convene a meeting of external people, basically the quality checks the internal FDA reviewers. Okay? Um, and that's the way Meaning it's people like you done. would be on that committee, Vanden Bosch, people like that. Correct. Okay. So in the actual BLA authorization letter for community, the FDA on page two makes this statement. We did not refer your application to the vaccines and related biologics products advisory committee because our review of information submitted in your BLA, including the clinical study design and trial results, at this, did not raise concerns or controversial issues that would have benefited from an advisory committee discussion. In other words, they've said, in our opinion, there's no controversy here. Therefore, we don't have. We can just uh, disregard our normal processes and not <laughs> convert an ex con con uh, convene an external advisory committee. In my experience, this has never been done. Um, and the amazing thing here, of course, is that your your viewers know that uh, or listeners know 
that there's enormous amounts of controversy going on about myocarditis, pericarditis, viral reactivation. The list goes on and on and on about adverse events noticed here in Europe, in Israel, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but uh, the FDA has decided in their infinite wisdom that that is actually not true, that none of that is actually controversial. Um, Meaning when have we ever in the history of any product seen where you know it, it was given EUA so quickly, but then we had an unprecedented number of, of events, questions, and then and then later on, the efficacy takes a beating to the point where it becomes the official government position that you you need another one, and then you go and give it full yet, authorization yet, yet, in this yet, 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 sneaky yet, yet, way. The FDA explicitly says there's no controversy. Um, no controversy. Now, they another key point is all of the efficacy claims, you mentioned that, they're all based on outdated data from alpha and beta. So they're not taking into account in their licensure any of this new data. Okay. Um, they explicitly acknowledge that the risks of myocarditis and pericarditis are not fully understood, and they require a huge list of additional follow-on studies in order to assess those things. Here's another that is just mind-boggling. I don't know if I read this before. Um, they, they, and this has some bureaucraties in it that I'll disambiguate for you in a minute. This is a quote from the FDA. We've determined that an analysis of spontaneous post-marketing adverse events reported under Section 505K1 of the FDCA will not be sufficient to assess known serious risks of myocarditis and pericarditis and identify an unexpected serious risk of subclinical myocarditis. Furthermore, the pharmacovigilance that FDA is required to maintain under Section 505K3 of the FDCA is not sufficient to assess serious risks, okay? What they are saying is that the VAERS system is incapable of assessing known serious risks, and furthermore, that the other pharmacovigilance systems that by law the FDA employs, is about 20 different databases that they were bragging about last October, are incapable of assessing known serious risk. Boom. So what got people thrown off of social media, the FDA is now saying. Correct. Okay. Um, then they acknowledge the risks in pregnancy remain unknown. And there is a teratogenicity and pregnancy study ongoing. Um, they acknowledge that the long-term myocardial issues will require a five-year follow-up, which just happens to be consistent with the long-term follow-up uh, requirements for gene therapy products. It goes on and on and on in terms of, of uh, what's going on here. The pediatric, the, the list of studies required now by the FDA to be performed by BioNTech, boy, they really got the short end of the stick here. Pfizer's being given a pass. BioNTech has been loaded up with, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine additional follow-up studies that uh, the FDA basically wants monthly reports on, um, uh, all focused on safety. Um, wait, wait, wait a minute, but if I get this straight, the government is putting the enforcement, surveillance, accountability regime on the thing that's basically not being dispensed publicly. True. 
I mean, it kind of makes sense. The, the Meaning, whole, I view the, the BioNTech as... The whole thing has the appearance of a kludgy uh, shell game workaround that has been deployed on short notice, bypassed all the standard processes in order to enable the government and businesses to enforce vaccine mandates on people without actually and not get liability data. And, 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 and again, I just want to reiterate one of your central points. Why wouldn't they go all the way? Why would they play this scattershot game of giving the full authorization to BioNTech, um, but not to Pfizer, which is the one basically commercially that everyone's getting? And the only, is the only explanation it, that I can come up with that makes any sense, and it's consistent with the Pfizer contracts that have been leaked now um, from all, all over the world, is that Pfizer is insisting on full indemnification. Why are they insisting on full indemnification if the products are safe and effective? I, I think the answer is self-evident. So they get to play both ends of the stick with experimental, but have it de facto mandated, and, but then get they, out of... And they protect Pfizer, but they throw, they throw BioNTech under the bus, frankly. Uh, but who cares? But, but again, are they really even thrown under the... Are they even thrown under the bus? Because isn't it isn't it a shell game? Because BioNTech, how many people commercially in the real world are getting that? No, nobody is. They're all getting Pfizer. I exactly. So it's kind of like, hey, like I, I view BioNTech as the theoretical lab, you know, where you, they kind of like conceive the product. But what's actually being distributed is the one that they're exempting from liability. They're not requiring any studies and reports and surveillance. Yeah. They're admitting so, the surveillance so the shell, is. The shell game is that the the press has been told and the public is being told that the Pfizer vaccine is licensed when in fact it isn't. Okay. The Pfizer vaccine that they're all getting is still under EUA just as before. Um, and uh, it still prohibits um, dosing to those under 16, by the way. And uh, what they did was they, they kind of, uh, I, you know, I don't know, shell game is the best metaphor I have. They have um, uh, cleverly hid from scrutiny the fact that what they've actually granted a license for is a product that is not yet available on the market produced by a uh, small company in Germany, uh, which is not the Pfizer product. So, and, it, and when it might be actually be available on the market is unknown, undetermined. Now, there's, there's a bunch wow. of other key points here. You know, why push mandates if you can't get to herd immunity? Tony has stopped talking about herd immunity, by the way. What happens eight months after the boosters? What's the plan for the next variant? We don't have – they're just reacting from day to day. This is crazy. Um, and then why are we messing with vaccine injury liability if the vaccines are safe and effective? These these are you know the the common points that that you know kitchen table points. What the heck is going on here? It's very and, clear, and again, folks, you could. It's very clear to me. Yeah, I was just going to say there's, there's you could find a, on your Twitter more. Yeah, there's been a government attempt here to uh, obscure what's actually going on, and the only reason I can come up with for that is because they wish to impose mandates on the military and through big business because they believe and through big business and they wow. believe that uh 
universal vaccination is going to be good for the economy and business, but they are totally neglecting the risk that they're creating for the entire human population by insisting on universal vaccination. Man, this is as informative as it is depressing, but Dr. Malone, never stop being vigilant. Um, It's a gift that we have you. Uh, Thanks for spending so much time on our network today, my show, Steve's show. Um, please come back. And, and again, folks, if you're not following R.W. Malone, MD, on Twitter, you're missing this. He has a tremendous amount of information on this and really other spheres of this uh, epidemic and, and the virus and the vaccines and all sorts of issues, natural immunity. Um, that Twitter feed is important. Uh, when, when he gets kicked off, I'll let you know where else to find him. <laughs> and, is and, there anywhere yeah. else that where you want people to follow you? Uh, we did set up a Gab account. We haven't used it. We have LinkedIn, but since I got kicked off of LinkedIn once, I've, I've kind of got a little cold to that. We have our website, and for instance, this full analysis is posted there. It's uh, rwmalonemd.com, uh, and we have a blog there and uh, info at that you can write to, etc. cetera. Um, and in terms of the Twitter feed, I want to emphasize increasingly, I throw out information, but it's, we, we've built a core of, on that, through that vehicle, there's now a core of physicians, scientists, and, and seasoned folk that have good common sense, mathematicians, statisticians, and others that are commenting. And I find it useful all the time for understanding and information. It's not just coming from me. What you're hearing here, for instance, in this information I just shared with you, represents the, the product of many, many different minds, just not, not just mine. So um, do take a moment yep. to read through uh, the comments. Um, uh, you know, there's always uh, the trolls, and we can't get away from that. But there's many really good thinkers uh, that are contributing, and and I I invite you to be one of them. Which is why the censorship is so important to them. They only censor those that are uh, a threat to their narrative, just like they only block uh, therapeutics that actually work. Uh, the more it works, the more they censor it, and the more your information is potent, the more they go after you, which is why, again, folks, again, R.W. Malone, M.D., I can't emphasize it enough. Thanks so much. Next time, we'll, we'll discuss a little bit more pharmacology, therapeutics. Um, Folks, we are way out of time. Uh, Let me know if you have any questions for Dr. Malone. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.